you and we plead with you by your Spirit's power to illumine our minds with truth, to warm our hearts, cause us to rejoice over what you teach. Show us your majesty and make us stand in awe of you that it would lead to our fleeing sin and coming near unto you and the redemption found in Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you're able, would you stand as we read this psalm together? Again, Psalm 29. The Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Well, this is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Week by week as we've walked through book one of the Psalter, we've seen repeatedly that this is a collection of hymns for conflict. There are laments, cries for help and for vindication. And then there are psalms of thanksgiving in view of the deliverance the Lord brought in prolonged struggle. And yet also in this collection, there have been little pauses to praise God for His power in creation. Psalm 8 comes to mind. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, Psalm 29, likewise, lifts us out of the fires of affliction to focus our attention on God's power. And yet here, it's not a glance at God's general work of creation, say at the very beginning, or even necessarily the daily witness of the Son carried forth that day by day. Rather, here we have a peek at sovereign power revealed in a particular way. Here it's in a violent, flood-inducing thunderstorm that travels from the sea down through the land of Canaan and into the desert. The storm is tumultuous. It's an apparent source of chaos. But the truth is, the Lord is enthroned over it. He reigns in the turbulence. And that storm is but a sign of His power. If Psalm 19 had us see the voice of God going out into all the earth to proclaim a message of God's glory, Psalm 29 makes us listen to the voice of Yahweh in the thunder. This is the God with whom we have to do. And the King over the flood demands our attention. 
We're going to see four things here, and it will be heavily weighted really in the first two points because it will take up most of the space of the psalm. We begin firstly with Yahweh's due. David begins here with a call to worship. Verse 1, ascribe, as in give to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, sometimes in the Psalms and in Scripture as a whole, the focus of praise for creation and providence is made to God with the title El, Elohim, or Elim, which is just a shortened form of Elohim. And all of those titles highlight God's power. Elohim is the name for God in Genesis 1. He is the strong one or the mighty one. But maybe you remember Genesis 2 starts using a title, the Lord God, which is Yahweh Elohim. Because the God who created is the God of the covenant. The God who has revealed Himself to His people. He's awesome, and yet He's approachable because He comes close to save us and to shepherd us, to direct us and defend us. This is our God. And while we can call God by His first name, if I can put it that way, Yahweh, the name the Lord gave to Moses at the burning bush, and it's a reminder that the Lord is unchanging, sovereign, faithful, and near, we must yet never forget that our God who is near is yet awe-inspiring, terror-inducing. He's transcendent in majesty. He's mighty and He is one who is owed worship. In fact, what is Yahweh's due? What is owed to Him? Well, praise, ascriptions of glory, the whole of our being as His creatures in devotion. And that devotion to God isn't supposed to arise simply from the realm of men. David here calls the angels to give it. Now, brethren, if we were to see an angel tonight like John did in the Revelation, we would be completely dumbfounded and tempted to worship. Angels are clothed in heavenly splendor. They're beings from another order, a reminder of the invisible realm And just one angel has power we can't possibly comprehend. It's just one angel that kills 185,000 Assyrians. You remember that? But even the angels are mere creatures. Creatures whom God spoke into existence and has to uphold with His same mighty Word. They are limited in every way. In power, in knowledge, and in space. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, you remember, speaks of the collection of angels, the seraphim, before the throne of Yahweh of hosts. And the scene truly depicts the vast distance between angels and the transcendent and holy God. The seraphim have six wings, and with two they're covering their feet because God's presence is holy. And with two they're covering their eyes because God's purity is stupefying, we might say. And with two, they're flying. And they're crying out in an unending hymn, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. God's greatness is infinite. It never began and it won't come to an end. And therefore, the hymn can't stop. Yahweh has to be adored. When like manner, David is here calling on the heavenly beings, the angels, to engage in holistic worship 
they are to ascribe or give Yahweh glory. That is, they are to focus their minds to recognize the power and majesty that belong to the Lord and then how He exercises that power and majesty. They are to think and then praise. And then as they think and praise, they're also to submit. For they are called into verse 2 to worship or bow down to Yahweh in or with a view to the splendor of holiness. He's holy and it compels them to face plant in His presence. He has all the trappings of majesty, of kingly glory. And that glory is summed up here in faultless holiness. So think of the scene. The angels are gathered around God's throne singing praises to Him. And yet those angels, we would say, are holy in one sense. They're without sin. But they're not holy as God is holy. There's an infinite distance between them as mere creatures and between Yahweh as Creator. He has everlasting and unchanging purity. So angels, praise Him and get low. Sing to His awesomeness and submit. That's what David is saying. Now as the angels speak of the Lord's glory and strength, as they ascribe things to Him, it's not as though they are adding anything to God. They're not making God more glorious. That's impossible. Because He's perfect. He's unchangeable in His glory. He's ultimate in His majesty and strength. He can't increase in power or purity. But as the angels sing and speak and ascribe the glory to, to the name of God, they're recognizing how great God is. And they're giving Him His due. In every moment, they're acknowledging the Lord's supremacy and they're captivated by His shining splendor. They have to see His Word and His works as He's revealed Himself. And they must marvel. Now brethren, if the sinless angels surrounding the throne of the Lord must give praise, must bow before the Lord in view of His holiness, what about us who were made, Psalm 8, a little lower than the angels? We owe Him worship. Now, David is commanding angels here. Which is interesting, isn't it? But he gets the implication for himself. <clears throat> In Psalm 103, David will likewise tell the angels, bless the Lord. But then he'll say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Are you moved to worship in light of the majesty of God? And then have you ever considered the relationship in worship between us and the angels. This blows my mind. Hebrews 12 tells us that when we approach God in worship, the heavenly Zion, when we approach Christ, we come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You're not, you don't see them. Right now, however, brethren, as we enter into the heavenly city in worship, we're joining our voices with innumerable angels singing praises unto God. They are unseen, but they are present. And we, mere men, are actually exalted above the angels through the redemption in Christ. Hebrews 2, Jesus doesn't come for angels. He comes to save the sons of Abraham. 
Jesus doesn't make angels to sit as kings with Him on the throne. But that's the position He gives to us. Angels are not called heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But we are. If you get this, maybe you'll understand when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will judge the angels. It's appropriate for us to call the angels to worship. But in view of our privileges, how dare we ever fail to give it? Worship is due God's name. Because God hasn't made a covenant of mercy with angels. He's made one with us. So there should be urgency, vigor, delight in our covenant of God. We should think of His Word and His works and we should sing to His praise and we should get low before Him. We should consider His greatness and bow. That's what worship should be. You should be overwhelmed with the majesty of God and it's why we approach Him with reverence and awe. But then secondly, see, not just Yahweh's due, but Yahweh's power in verses 3-9. to Now the psalm opens demanding worship, but here we get one reason for such worship. It's just one. But David turns to a particular manifestation of God's power in a storm. And just so we don't dare look at the storm on its own and lift that storm up to supernatural status, David uses the phrase throughout the psalm, the voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh. He uses it seven times. The thunder is but a revelation of God. It's one display of His power, but it's quite a display. For David is going to follow in the psalm the track of the storm for hundreds of miles. First, he sees it in verse 3, out over the waters. Look at it. The voice of the Lord is there over the waters. It's out over the Mediterranean Sea and it's moving east towards the shore. And as it does so, God's glory thunders. Try to picture it. We are fascinated, aren't we, with thunderstorms out over the water? A sight of that dark mass lighting up the sky, crackling with ear-splitting rumbles as it moves. And David says, Yahweh's voice is powerful. You ain't kidding. Yahweh's voice is full of majesty. He stupefies us with His greatness in view of our smallness. Because He's not in the storm. Some type of ancient perspective on nature is God. We we hear that all the time today. Mother Nature. He's not in the storm. He rules the storm. He rides it. He controls it. He causes the storm to do His bidding. In what appears to be chaos in the storm, He governs the scene entirely. Now, interestingly, the Canaanite god Baal, represented by the bull, was praised by the Canaanites as the god of thunder, the god of the storm. You remember how this comes up in the Elijah versus the prophets of Baal encounter on Mount Carmel. Baal supposedly, in Canaanite theology, conquered Yom, who is the god of the mighty waters. And now Baal rules the waters and the storm. In fact, Baal is so in charge that he should be able to conjure up thunder, provoke a storm at any moment. And yet this is the very point that the Lord's going to attack, right? A famine's going to come. And then the Elijah encounter, or better, the divine throwdown between Yahweh and Baal, Baal is a no-show. He's a phony. But in this psalm, brethren, long before 
that encounter, David is saying, Yahweh alone rules the thunder. He is king over the storm. Because look at what his voice can do. Now, Israel ought to remember the power of Yahweh's voice from Mount Sinai. The poetic descriptions are that Yahweh's voice shattered the rocks, made the mountains to tremble. It was so terrifying there on Mount Sinai as billows of smoke came out and lightning and thunder took place that as Moses was beckoned to come up to God on the mountain in grace because God's revealing Himself, Moses was yet full of fear and trembling. After Israel heard Yahweh speak, they wanted Moses to go up. People are silly today saying, I just want to hear a voice from the heavens. I want to hear God address me. When Israel heard the voice of God, they thought they were going to die. And they said, don't talk to us anymore. Moses can go hear from the Lord. It's so overwhelming to hear God's voice. Indeed, in Exodus 19.19, as Yahweh descends on Mount Sinai, Moses specifically said, God answered in the thunder. God answered in thunder. Well, thunder isn't technically Yahweh's voice. But Sinai made such an impression that when it thundered, they recognized the Lord is addressing His people. The Lord is speaking, as it were, through creation. He's stirring the storm And He is at work. And look at what He does. Verse 5, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Which cedars? The cedars in Lebanon. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Lebanon forest, but this is quite significant in Scripture. It was up on the Phoenician coast, Tyre and Sidon area. These are the strongest trees in all of Mesopotamia. They will be the trees harvested to build the temple in Jerusalem. They are mighty cedars. Evidence suggests that we're talking about trees 70 to 80 feet tall and as much as 30 feet in circumference. They're not redwood, sure, but these are massive trees. And yet as Yahweh's storm moves from the water, out out from the water, over the land, the cedars are shattered by His power. Think of these stately trees snapped in a flash seemingly immovable stalwarts and they're splintered like toothpicks. The power is unbelievable. It reminds me of a day that's really time-stamped on my memory. Saturday, April 24th, 2010. My family went to a place called the Triangle. It was the Cultural Arts Center in the town we lived at the time, Yazoo City, for a ballet recital. It seemed nearly half the town was there for that event as kids four and upwards did their little dance that we all get to go watch. You remember those? But as the morning ticked on, there was another show on the horizon. A powerful storm had developed in the lower Mississippi Valley which produced a frightful wedge tornado which would be on the ground for 150 miles. That raging beast hit the ground in northern Louisiana and not long after 10 a.m. jumped the muddy river, as we call it, and slithered its way to Yazoo County. By 10.30 a.m. there at the Triangle, things were getting dicey. The theater was evacuated. We all fled to the basement. Rain and hail are beating down. 
and it brought a new level of noise. The old brick building we were in seemed to quake and there was fear that the whole thing was going to collapse. Just up the road, a couple of miles, and about 300 feet in elevation, a nearly two mile wide rain-wrapped behemoth, an F4 tornado, blasted the town. And what happened there is nearly indescribable. Winds at 200 miles an hour tossed a car through a restaurant. The people who survived in there only survived because they went into the freezer. It made buildings explode. It caused a church to completely cave in. Dale Thrasher, a deacon at Hillcrest Baptist Church, was doing some straightening in the sanctuary that morning as the collapse began. He dove under the table for the offering plate and cried, Lord, save me! And the whole building came down. Well, God spared him. But four people weren't spared. As glass shattered, power lines snapped, houses broke in pieces. But the indelible sight for me was the tree line because it would never be the same. Massive pines, maple, oaks, they were snapped as though a weed whacker went through at 20 to 30 feet in the air and just cut everything. In one spot, a neighborhood called, interestingly, Enchanted Forest, literally thousands of trees were broken. People saw their neighbors for the first time. I remember after the storm, some folks in the congregation go out, going out on your porch with coffee, thinking you're in a forest, and now you can see everybody else in their pajamas. That was the scene. It wasn't a forest anymore. The days to follow were filled with the near, never-ceasing sound of chainsaws. It gave me a new appreciation, however, for divine power. Some of the trees were literally twisted two and three times around so that when they were cut, you had to cut and move because it would untwist. And if you didn't move, it would take you out. Right after the storm, I was desperately trying to call every member in the church I knew in the area. Phone lines were jammed. Cell towers were down. I finally got through to one member who lived in that neighborhood and chanted for us. I'll never forget his words to me. David, I just saw the power of God. He sure did. That's this storm. Sometimes when we think of the power of God, we think of a, a serene scene. Snow-capped mountains and everything peaceful. But when the whole world seems to be shattering, brethren, that is the power of God. And it's happening here. Look at what His voice is doing. Not only breaking cedars. Verse 6, He, the Lord, makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. In other words, the shaking was like an earthquake. Syrian is another name for Mount Hermon in the north of Israel. And it was as though the mountain danced. The whole mountain quaked. And then as the storm moved south through Israel, the lightning just took your breath away. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. Jagged lines of light cut through the sky. As trees were struck, sparks flew. The dry ground went ablaze. And then the shaking, verse 8, went all the way to the wilderness of Kadesh. That's a barren area to the south of Israel. But interestingly, the verb in verse 8, repeated twice, shakes, literally means to cause to writhe or to whirl. The picture may well be as the storm hits the desert, 
that a sandstorm is stirred up or there is a tornado. But then notice the effect of the storm and the power on the Lord's creation. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. The imagery here is that premature labor comes on in these creatures out of raw fear. Terror, anxiety brings on the birth pangs because the forests are being stripped bare. Bark is exploding from the trees. However, while the lower creation is petrified, those around the throne, those near the heavenly temple, the angels, they see this raw power and they cry into verse 8 in a safe posture there. Glory. You see, there are moments when even the angels themselves are so mesmerized by God's greatness and power that they shout in praise to the glory of God. Hope you remember another time they do that. Luke chapter 2, they sing a song at the incarnation. Glory to God in the highest. And my friends, if the angels are moved in the heavenly sanctuary over the display of God's majesty, What's the implication for any who come to worship in the earthly tabernacle, which is just a shadow of the heavenly meeting place? The people here on earth, especially Yahweh's people, are to stand in awe. This is a be still and know that I am God kind of moment. And we should bow down before His greatness. We should be enamored with the Lord, captivated by His power. We should be moved to see infinite might and recognize Our God is incomparable. What a wretched thing it is to tremble before a storm. Just the outskirts of God's power, a sampling of His strength, and then fail to attribute greatness to the God who gave the storm. Fail to be moved by Him. How monstrous is it to give the creation praise and fail to see the Creator and heed His voice. It's evident in the teachings of the Lord Jesus and in John's revelation that signs accompanying the end will be things like earthquakes, lightnings, violent storms. And these communicate to us God's power to judge. The prophets, in fact, will describe the end of the world in similar terms. Haggai 2 says that a day will come when Yahweh will shake the heavens and overthrow thrones and destroy the strength of kingdoms. Isaiah 2, the day will come when all the proud will be brought low and it will be an earth collapsing scene where men run into caves and holes in the ground and ask the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Yahweh is mighty and the power witnessed in one storm is but a glimpse of the God before whom we must stand. Are you ready to meet the judge clothed in His majesty? Who could stand before His indignation? Who could endure power like this? And these storms here, they're just trumpets of God's punishment to a cursed world. They're warning signs of the danger of opposing God. What will become of you? If you resist a God with this power, if you scoff at His covenant blessings, 
This is why we need a covenant mediator greater than Moses. It's why we need a sacrifice better than the repeated offerings of the sacrificial system. We need a Savior, get this poetry, to hush the law's loud thunder. Isn't John Newton an amazing poet? To quench Mount Sinai's flame. We need a hiding place. One who will take the blow, who will shelter us in the storm. Isn't that what's pictured in the ark in Noah's day? There's safety in the midst of judgment. Well, brethren, where's the safety in this psalm? David seems to indicate there's safety in God's presence near to His throne. That's where the worshipers can avoid destruction and cry glory. Well, we need that safety near the throne. And God has given it in Jesus. Now, David is not speaking here directly of Christ, but brethren, surely this description of shattering power that can blow up trees and make mountains to quake, surely it tells us when God's storm comes, like the plagues in Egypt, when His judgment falls, you need Him to bring you near. Because the Lord our God is no wilting violet. He's a roaring lion. And when He roars, where will you go? The only refuge from Him is in Him. And He's given you Christ, a place to hide. Are you running there for safety? But then thirdly, we move from this picture of terror to a picture of peace. See Yahweh's position. As the storm rages and everything is breaking and whirling, David lifts our eyes up from the earthly realm into turmoil to heaven. And with eyes looking to the throne, David declares, verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Now the word for flood here is important because this word is only used in one other section of Scripture. Genesis 6-11. to So it links the storm described in this psalm with the deluge in Noah's day. And that link stirs up more images of judgment. What will become of those who sin against the Lord and don't repent? But more specifically, brethren, the link looks to the God of the past who is yet the God of the present. Verse 10, first phrase, Yahweh sits. Or since David is really looking to a moment in the past, it's probably better translated Yahweh sat enthroned or He sat as King over the flood in the raging waters and the pervasive death and yet the preservation of Noah and his family. Through all that seemed to be disordered, Yahweh governed the scene and everything that happened was under His sovereign purpose. So while natural forces, we might say, were unleashed as God judged the world in righteousness, He also provided for and protected the man of faith, Noah, and those with him. And what was God doing in the flood? Well, that disaster was not a sign of His absence. Don't you hear people say that today in great calamity? Where was God when this happened? Where was God in the flood? He was executing His purpose. He was manifesting His power. He was revealing wrath and mercy. Nothing was spinning out of control. And what was true then in the most calamitous moment in history that David can remember or know about 
What he's doing then, he's doing now. Second line, verse 10. Yahweh sits or has seated Himself as King forever. He's enthroned forever. Do you see the, the logic? The greater calamity, the flood, to your daily life, the lesser situations. Back to the greater forever. God sits enthroned forever. Never is the Lord off the throne. Never does His sovereignty stop. Never does the world get away with Him, get away from Him, as though it's somehow spinning off and He's lost His grip on it. Nothing will be compromised in the rule of God. He's always working out all things according to the counsel of His will. He's bringing judgment and He's raining mercy on His people. And since He sits His King over the flood and King forever, no power in all creation can sever His covenant mercies. No force can shatter the communion that we have with Him because He's brought us to Himself. While all the world and all the people in the world deserve the Lord's judgment, the King has given a refuge from His wrath. That historical display of mercy, of course, was the ark where He would give them safety and judgment. But He's given us Jesus. And we're always safe in the midst of judgment. Brethren, as a people who walk through this world, a world of calamity, we don't always experience storms like this or F4 tornadoes, praise the Lord. We're not always seeing those. But the world is full of trouble, isn't it? So what's our comfort when we pass through a cursed world amidst sinners who deserve storms? It's that the God of the covenant is with us, has taken us to Himself, and He's on the throne forever. He's our keeper. His steadfast love remains with those who fear Him. And that doesn't mean you will never face a storm. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Storms are normative. But when storms come, they serve the King's purpose. And the King rules them for His glory and our good. Here's the point. He can be trusted. You might not understand why the storm has come, but He can be trusted. You don't need to be petrified. As you see power, you can just stand in awe and worship. Why is that? Because you have a place of safety in the midst of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rule of God has been shown in countless ways in Jesus' earthly ministry. Power over nature. The storm. Power to cast innumerable demons out of a man. Power over sickness. Power over death. Jesus rules forces that would threaten to come against us. And as the King, He can't be overthrown. That was shown most magnificently in His third day resurrection. The devil was defeated. The curse was shattered. Jesus faced the flood of judgment and He satisfied the wrath of God. He entered into the waters of wrath, sunk to the depths, and yet victoriously rose. And now He is exalted to the highest place. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Our King, Jesus, is ascended forever. And never shall His position be compromised. That means we have safety 
in Him. For then do you tremble at power not just to shatter trees, but power to break the grave? That's amazing. And David is saying, though not yet knowing the fullness of it, look at that power and be in awe. Why can you be safe? Because this God is your God. And then finally see, just a, a brief th- note here. Yahweh's blessings. Look at what this God who reigns will do for you. Kings, they can rule, but be distant, inattentive, and uncaring. <clears throat> That's not our God. He reigns and He sustains. Verse 11, while the ESV translates this as a prayer, the Hebrew and most commentators indicates it's actually just a statement. So, not may Yahweh, but Yahweh emphatic strength to His people He will give. Yahweh will bless His people with peace. David is telling us here that while Yahweh reigns as a God of unspeakable power, He's not detached from us. He brings His omnipotence to bear on our lives as His people. So as we are filled with weakness in some moments and full of fear, we are yet empowered by God, sustained by God, assured by God, fortified by God. We have a treasure in these jars of clay, the very power of the Gospel. In fact, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. The very omnipotence of Almighty God is living inside of you so that you will go from strength to strength. That's amazing. In one side of a storm like this, it shows us how puny and powerless we are. makes us ask, how can I stand in a world of trouble if I'm so feeble? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Only by strength from above. But here's the wonder. The Lord is willing to give that strength. And not just to give it, but to keep giving. And keep giving. And keep giving. So that you will go from strength to strength. We know that young men can stumble and fall, but those who wait on the Lord, because of that strength and power, will be renewed by the grace of God. That's what God is willing to do. He provides what is necessary to sustain us. In other words, David is saying, you see that great king manifesting such amazing power? He cares about little old you. He could squash you like a bug. Isaiah 40 says we are grasshoppers before Him. But He's willing to give you manna from heaven, water from a rock, even the bread of life, His own Son, who will be a fountain for sin and uncleanness. All that we need for daily provision and spiritual stamina, the Lord provides. And not just that, not just as He keep giving strength, He gives peace. It's striking, you know, that the psalm starts with a storm and unsettles us, and yet the psalm ends in peace. One writer says the closing Hebrew word in peace is like a rainbow arch over the psalm because the great power of God is also manifesting itself as the God of great mercy. And if we worship Him, if we bow to Him and submit to Him, if we trust His care, we can have peace in any storm. It's a little like Jesus on the boat in Mark 4. What was Jesus doing 
as a tempest hits the water? Brethren, he was asleep. How? Total trust in his Father's care. Maybe it can give you a new perspective on Colossians 3. May the peace of Christ, the peace that He possesses and gives, rule our hearts. This is peace to quench the judgment of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're reconciled. And this is the peace to silence our daily anxieties. A peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. May we adore the Lord for His power and yet rest in His willingness to impart peace to our soul. For here's the wondrous truth to His worshipers. This is our God. And we're safe with Him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, Your power is beyond all comprehension. Your glory, the sum of Your attributes, takes our breath away and we will spend eternity praising and praising and praising in view of Your infinite majesty. Lord, we are awed by the manifestation of Your power, just the outskirts of Your greatness in things like storms. But, oh Lord, our hearts are more awed that You would give us a shelter from Your storm, the storm of Your wrath in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would rest in the peace that You're willing to give. Know the strength that You provide us as we come near to the place of safety around the throne through Christ. And we just stand in awe of how awesome You are. Amaze us with Your greatness and Your goodness and cause us to live in light of Your power. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.